Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Vector, where we discuss topics, trends, and insights driving the global space ecosystem. I am your host, Kelly Kitas Ogborn, and today I am joined by Raphael Rotgen, who is a bit of a renaissance man of sorts in space. He is the founder of E2MC Ventures, which is a space-focused early-stage venture capital firm, as well as co-founder of Prometheus Life Technologies, which is a space biotech startup that was the first startup to win the Orbital Reef Innovation Challenge. He also lectures on space entrepreneurship and finance at several universities, including the International Space University, which is also known as ISU, and the Swiss Institute of Technology at Lausanne, also known as EPFL. He hosts a very popular space business podcast and is the author of To Infinity, which is an introductory book on the space economy. In a previous life, before all of this, he held senior roles at global investment banks and hedge funds and was also a fintech entrepreneur in Brazil. Welcome, Rafael, to the conversation today. Thanks, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, I have been really looking forward to this conversation because your background is extremely interesting to help paint this picture of both you know, opportunities in the space ecosystem, but also how to create strategies to achieve goals and respond to demand signals is, as you know, in this ever evolving space economy that we're all trying to uh, qualify and quantify in depth. Yes, absolutely. Great. Um, so given your background, I, I kind of want to frame this conversation as a three-parter. I want to first get from you, you know, how you think about the space economy some understandings, then move into your in-depth experience and investment. And then lastly, you know, leave our viewers with some um, strategies that they can engage. So as a starting point, um, you know, there's a lot of posturing about where the space economy is going to go. Everybody talks about it being one trillion by 2040. And we're about halfway there with the current space economy number at 269 or sorry, 469. But what are the main drivers that, that you really see? Like where, where are the biggest opportunities for growth in the next, say, five to seven years? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And thank you for asking the question. I think it's a particularly important question to ask right now because we all know the, the current market environment is obviously not as you know, supportive as it was maybe 18, wow. 24 months ago and before. And as you mentioned in the intro, I'm... You know, I've been a financial markets person for a long time before all of this, right? Uh, first as an investment banker and as a hedge fund guy. So trust me, I know all about market cycles. I've lived through the great financial crisis. Yeah. I've lived through the internet bubble. I'm going to date myself now, right? You have the I've bruises and the scars from it. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully not too many bruises and scars, but I've ho hopefully experience and learning. Yeah. I've lived through this. The financial markets are the financial markets. This has always been like this. It will always be be like this. I want to be. I want to send, well, hopefully several messages here. One very clear message I want to send to those of the listeners who are entrepreneurs or also investors: keep the eyes on the ball. None of the fundamental drivers of the space economy have changed. Focus. The fundamental drivers, and this is things like we all know, and they've probably you know being discussed on on this podcast and other podcasts many times over and over again. The quite dramatic cost decreases, right, of accessing and operating in space. So, of course, launch costs, but also costs of satellites and their components and so forth. Now we're starting to talk about downmass costs, really significant cost decreases. That's one example of a key driver that I think many people are already familiar with. And, yep. and obviously, if anything, compared to where we were even during the bull market, we're getting better and better on this, right? I mean, there's sort of short-term of course, um, blips like, you know, now SpaceX is increasing prices for ride share, as many people know. 
But sort of the longer term trend is the same. Starship is on the horizon. You know, I'm among these people who think the first flight was by and large, test flight was by and large a success. I have every faith also as a SpaceX investor that Starship is going to work. That's going to bring these costs down, cost down further. The cost, the, the price we have to see, that's a strategic decision for, for SpaceX. Yeah. But this, this cost decrease fundamental driver is completely intact from what I can see. Um, another sort of supportive trend of space that's intact, and it's always been around, but it's actually um, becoming stronger and stronger, is just the very broad-based government support. And yeah. that's, of course, including also for geopolitical reasons, right, that that's been expanded. And military spend is going up in many places around the world for obvious reasons. And as we all know, some of that is flowing directly back into space. A third thing that's continuing to happen, and that's sort of like more simmering and it's you have to look more carefully to see it, but more and more people are getting educated about space, right? Yeah. This is going to take a while, but this is completely normal. Again, I'm old enough to have seen this in, in several industries, including the internet, which we can talk about, right? That whenever you have a sort of, well, I was going to say new industry. I mean, in many ways, of course, space isn't a new industry, but let's call it in this latest, in, latest iteration of, you know, what some people call new space. It is a relatively new phenomenon that non-space sectors like whatever you want to pick agriculture insurance mining uh, pharma they need a little bit of time to get educated and get their head around well what does that mean for my sector but it's happening i can tell you it's happening because you know i get the requests from people in those companies or they send people to you know the courses i teach it's happening it's going to take a few years but my my main message here is all of these key drivers are intact um i very much still have huge faith in the future of the space economy. I do believe it's going to be a trillion dollar economy. I have no idea when or exactly what the structure is going to be. But that's also always like this. You know, if I go back now to the internet, which I'm old enough to have lived through the internet bubble, you know, you had exactly the same thing. You know, I'm, I'm a ardent student of history for these reasons, because there's nothing new in the world. History, as yeah. Richard said, it, it, it's never the same, but it always rhymes. In the internet... Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you go back to the Internet days, you can you can pull out the newspaper archives from the mid to late 90s and see there was all of the forecasts about the Internet. And of course, there were probably all of them were wrong. It doesn't matter if you were in the mid to late 90s, you could keep your eyes on the ball. You see the trends. You don't get distracted. You execute as a founder or as an and or as an investor. Right. And don't get distracted by the voices, the cyclical voices. And I could, I'm not going to talk bad about anybody, but now, of course, as always in these situations, you now have people who were cheerleaders for space during the bull market. And now they're writing critical, like, and, and yeah. it's fine to write critical articles, but sort of like they completely flip-flop, like, in, and, and the internet is unforgiving, right? You can go back and sort of see who flip-flop. My message again to founders and investors, completely ignore these voices. They're irrelevant. They're irrelevant. Yeah. Like, if what you built here based on the, the trends, the macro trends we have, if it works out, you will be remembered. Like journalists who go write political articles, nobody will remember them other than that's a bad example. And again, we could go back to the internet and find these bad examples. You know, I pulled up the other day, there was a New York Times, a big article about, oh, dot com bust, the internet is over, something along those lines from, I think, 2001. And, you know, it didn't age very well. So take constructive criticism, criticism you know, and there's people who have um, been con continuously constructively critical of space and said, well, it's too government dependent and, and so forth. And there's, there's some valid arguments. Those people are fine to listen to, but ignore the cyclical voices. Keep your eyes on the ball. Execute. Very optimistic about the future of the space economy. I, I'll pause here. I've talked a lot, but I get excited about this topic. No, I mean, you, you framed it really well because the, the two points that you made about 
I'll call it the launch equation, and then also just the the government support really has been this driver about why this opportunity and enthusiasm to your to your point number three, right? That more people are becoming interested in space or or realizing that there is a direct access point to them where it might not have been unreachable. Because I think in the past, I mean, I've said this on many other vector conversations. The wonderful thing about the space industry is we don't suffer from an optics issue. Everybody thinks space is cool. However, for decades before, it seemed unreachable by industries and, and entities and, and individuals, right, who didn't actually have access to it. And I, um, I very firmly believe that, to your point, the launch equation is going to happen. We are going to have ubiquitous, cheap, reliable rides to space. And it's just figuring out that insertion point. And you brought up my favorite topic of these other industries. I always call them space adjacent because they are relevant to building the future now they will be relevant to the to the scalability of the future they just don't know what space means for them and when they can take advantage of it from a business opportunity that that's the biggest key because is it in three years when these commercial space stations come online what are your thoughts on that i think it's a tremendous opportunity but let's let's be clear it is going to take a few years it always takes a few years right yeah so Again, I keep dating myself. You know, I was in college when like the internet sort of like um, became big, a bigger thing in the mid to late 90s, right? And so I was in college and we had, okay, internet, what's that? Okay, we have like email and then there was Yahoo was there and then Amazon just started selling books, but all of the websites were really crappy, right? And then it, it took, well, arguably five plus years, if not more, for most non-internet native businesses to get ahead around how to use yeah. this new technology right whether it's retailers now having um, online stores in addition to um, bricks and mortar or or other industries uh, using the internet in other ways it, it took a few years it always takes a few years um new technologies like that always start with with the nerds right so it wasn't mm -hmm. different with the internet i mean uh, in, substantially at the beginning it was people like mark andreessen right like computer science people and then it took a few years to like drag other people in, explain to them why the internet was important to their business, how they can gain competitive strategic advantages employing the internet in their business. And then we all know how that ended, right? And in the meantime, there's again going to be a lot of distracting voices. There's going to be cyclical up and downs. The market, there's yeah. going to be buckled bubbles that burst. But I think it's a huge opportunity. I think similar to the internet, and I know by now it's sort of a cliche in Paris, uh, comparison, but I do believe many non-space non sectors on Earth, like some of the ones I mentioned, right? Like, you know, pharma, agriculture, and so forth, can use space technology. The problem is that people need to, not a problem, the, the, the fact is that people need to be educated, right? And this is why, I mean, you, in the intro, you mentioned some of these other activities I'm doing besides being a venture investor. I'm doing all of that to educate people because I know that yeah. indirectly that's really important to create a space economy that well, I want to invest in at the end of the day, right? So I want to educate as many sort of like, you know, general investors, corporates, just the general public as possible so they know why and how space can be useful. Now, I think it's a huge opportunity because, you know, as many people will really quite rightfully point out space is still substantially government dependent, mm -hmm. right? And we all know this. And it's like, you can scratch the surface, even like, you know, some well-known companies, some of the EO companies, and we're like, well, there's really quite a bit of their revenue, if not the vast majority is basically government revenue, right? And, and for many startups, um, substantially everything also on the upstream side, but frankly, across the board, if the government support would fall away at this point in time, you know, that would be problematic. But I mean, 
so I, I see the glass always as half full, if not as entirely full. I mean, I think the government, it's a blessing for our sector that we have the government support, right? Because many other sectors don't have that luxury. So we can actually bridge timeframes, you know, if you need to kind of develop things over a longer time frame. And secondly, I think it's a huge opportunity because that whole sort of applying space business models for commercial customers, by and large, we're only scratching the surface right now. Right. But I'm convinced that it will happen because how could it not happen? Because, you know, there's just X number of, tangible use cases that make sense and we can discuss some of them right for example what we're doing at prometheus um, life technology right which um, you know we're i think the experts in uh, growing um, three-dimensional human tissue so-called organoids under microgravity conditions that has clear advantages what we needed for that to make commercial sense and what is now starting to happen is the price for space access and return to come down but yep. the cheaper we go on space, the more and more of these commercial use cases will make sense. And then you'll be able to go to people and explain to them, look, this is not just a cool thing. This is not just something for your innovation or marketing department where you say, oh, we did something in space. No, no. This is something where your actual operational business units yeah. can have a tangible advantage, whether that's you know uh, generating more revenue or saving cost or giving you a strategic um, um, uh, positioning advantage of your competitor or all of the above. But we need to educate the non-space people about that. Oh, absolutely. And I would actually love your perspective on, um, on this issue of being really altruistic and excited for the future, but having this pragmatic, and you use the word tangible, right? It's like tangible approach to growing the space economy in a way that's sustainable. Because like any market, you know, there are the early adopters and you, you brought up the internet. There's people that really believe in the future. They believe in the far capabilities. There's always the people that are lagging behind that are cautiously optimistic. And then once there's a proven capability, they rush into it. But to your point, those are also sometimes the people that don't really have the tenacity to see it through because within space, it is difficult to build space technologies. And this is one of the things that people forget about. To your point, it takes time, it takes money, it takes grit. It takes explosions, it takes all sorts of things. And so I think we're in this interesting area where the market forecasts are there. Every day, as, as you and I have seen, there are these new technologies and new innovations um, really coming online that are more forward thinking in terms of commerce and LEO. So we're talking about in-orbit service and manufacturing, maneuverability of satellites, you know, all of that. Um, how do you think about that sort of roadmap? Because there is this need to be forward thinking about this is what my capability can bring to bear, but also understand what it takes to get it there and be really pragmatic in the investment strategy, in your customer strategy and, and just in the iterations of it. Yeah. So um, let me start answering this by picking up one specific thing you said, which is you mentioned the forecasts again. Yeah. To some extent, I mean, and this may sound aggressive, I just want people to forget about the forecasts. Just build something that brings value to a customer then yeah. nobody will care about the forecast. If you can go to somebody and say, again, this, this improves your revenue, this, this lowers your costs, this gives you a strategic advantage, they don't care about the forecast. I mean, they, they'll have their own forecasts, right? So this is really important. Now, coming back and answering your question in a more general way. So, you know, I do think people, like you said, space is hard and um, especially some of the upstream stuff is really hard and people have to be respectful of that. And it's always been like that. You know, it's not like you set something up by and large in your garage and uh, it's necessarily going to work. You know, it may take yeah. more money than you think it may take longer than you think and you want to be prepared for that right so one aspect of that especially in the current market environment is that you're very prudent with your um with your capital planning and management right so 
you know, capital is not as easily available as it was, you know, whatever, 18, 24 months ago. So you want to take that into account. So one of the things that, you know, I, we tell our startups, but that I also tell uh, people in my entrepreneurship classes is, you know, if you have a new um, business plan for space, especially on the upstream side, okay, do things like think about, okay, which, which grants, like what kind of non-dilutive capital is available that can yeah. help you out and, and, and bridge you and extend your runway. That's one thing. Or another example is that, you know, one way where we have also made progress in the space sector, which should not be underestimated, I think it's really important is that we have taken, well, we've at least started to take the friction out of starting a space business. You can go and like, and, and you know all of this, but you can go and talk to the founders of like to, to Peter Platzer at Spy or, or Robbie and other people at, at Planet and ask them how it was to start a satellite company 10 plus years ago. And they're like, well, yeah, there's a reason we built our satellite in-house and you know we had to do everything ourselves. We don't have to do that anymore, right? Like for many business models now, you can actually just host your payload, let's say for an Earth observation company, you can just host your payload, right? And pay a monthly fee. You go to companies like the Orbit, Endurosat, uh, and, and, and quite a few others, which, um, uh, which, which exist already. And so in that way, it's also become much easier and much less capital intensive to build a space business. And that, that is hugely helpful. And people should always have that in mind, especially in the current market environment, so that there is not that need to like incur this huge or the same level of huge upfront capex that you needed in the past. Yeah, the, the business models are really interesting because um, you know faster, better, cheaper in some ways can be a model. Integrating into the existing supply chain can be a model. I think that some entrepreneurs feel that it's either they they build their company ground up and and execute it is the only way. But there's a lot of opportunities, and I'm curious from your perspective. Um, I'm going to start with this this question, then I want to go more broader. But you've you've seen a lot of pitches, I'm sure, from from companies. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen companies make, or some of the biggest red flags for you when someone is posturing their idea? Oh God, there would be so many examples, right? But so let's start from one that we just discussed: is that people, even today, when it is much easier to um, you know, do things like hosting your payload, that people for some reason still ins insist on building their own hardware. And there is yeah. cases where that's justified, you know, where it's really a strategic advantage of yours, really specialized in-house knowledge. But in many cases, it's not, right? And it seems to be like, come on, guys, you really just want to do this because you're a couple of aerospace engineers, and it's, it's, oh, cool, yeah. to build your, it's cool to build your own satellite. I get it, but like it doesn't make sense in your case so that happens yeah. quite often still right um another thing of course that's sort of related to that is that people kind of still run after how can i say this they still run after the same things that have been by and large done right so mm -hmm. you know, if you want to if you want to really start a launch company in 2023 you better have some really damn good justification and differentiation why why that needs to be the case because there's a lot of launch companies around i mean the ones which are already around, even the ones which already have hardware, like most of them won't survive probably, right? Yeah. Um, there's some niche cases I can think of where it may make sense, but it's, again, it feels again like people are sort of like running after the last thing and whereas they should be forward looking and say like, okay, you know, what, what is actually in the future? And that's actually something, if you have time, I want to talk about, which there's a whole sort of shift in focus that I'm going through, that we're going through at E2MC, my fund basically from upstream more towards downstream or sometimes i call it from infrastructure more through that, yeah which i think is a very important uh, interesting shift and by the way again mirrors what happened in the internet and then another uh, mistake we frequently see so if we actually get into some of the business models that you and i alluded to right now which are very interesting in that they actually specifically 
so which are no longer pure upstream use cases like not building rockets or satellites but actually using space and building an application that's useful for some industry let's say yeah. insurance or agriculture I mean, the vast majority of the time we see companies which are not set up in the right way to serve a use case like that uh, in the sense that, and, and, and this is actually just the side effect of us still being early in this latest iteration of space, in the sense that the companies, or the vast majority of founders we still see are still people from the existing space sector. So what you see all of the time is a couple of more or less aerospace guys, you know, wanting to do something for... You pay, like insurance sector, right? And then, and then of course, you know, we sit in a meeting and we're like, what do you guys know about insurance? And they're like, well, not really anything, right? And then that, that, that doesn't work, right? But again, I don't want to make this sound too negative because the same thing happened in the internet. Again, the first yeah. internet founders were people like Mark Andreessen, computer science nerds, took a few years because then again, the education is important to drag in people from the adjacent sectors Mm -hmm. And then you combine that knowledge. And that's where you can, I think, get really powerful and value-creating ventures. Absolutely. Well, and I think to that point of the downstream capabilities, it, it then opens the aperture for more people to become part of the space economy and to realize that they're either already engaging or utilizing it, or they can utilize it for new and creative ways. Um, and I'm starting to see a lot of startups they, they, some of them have the dual hatted, so they'll be upstream and downstream, but the downstream is actually the one that probably has the most ROI. So from a, um, I guess, a future posturing aspect, and you could get into the, the downstream um, piece from this outside of the launch equation. So there's plenty of launch startups. What are the, and it could be the five sectors, it could be the five technologies, but what do you see? really driving growth in the future or what at least gets you excited about it yes yeah, really it's a great question and i don't claim to have sort of like the, the 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 best answer on that right but so in no particular order so what i was starting to talk about is uh we're certainly starting to focus our shift a little bit sorry we're starting to shift our focus a little bit from you know um upstream hardware stuff or something called infrastructure stuff more towards downstream sometimes called application stuff and that has a simple reason um a lot of stuff on the upstream side has been done right yeah. i mean we have thanks Very to space we have reliable economical launch you know hopefully it'll be some others and hopefully starship will work and then we'll have some you know other launch capabilities i think in other parts of the world um also, what is part of infrastructure is we have a lot of, if you talk about EO, we have a lot of sensors up there already. And then we have a lot, we will have a lot more sensors over the next few years. And many of yeah. them will actually will happen because they're, they will be put up by companies which have already raised significant funding. And then we're kind of putting in place, I'm not saying infrastructure is totally done. We're still putting into place, you know, some, some elements like, you know, um, down mass, down mass, so up mass capability is fine. Down mass capability is not yet, right? But there's a ton of startups. As you know, yeah. that are working on Earth return. Obviously, uh, space stations uh, fall somewhere in, uh, in there as well. In space transportation falls somewhere in there mm -hmm. somewhere as well. But I think we have made quite good progress on the up upstream infrastructure side. We're still looking at it as an investment. And again, there's still niche opportunities. But I think the really interesting question now is similar to what happened with the internet. Well, if all of that, if if all of that infrastructure is either in place or in say three to five years, which is the kind of time frame I, as an early stage investor, should look at will be in place, what kind of applications can we run on top of that infrastructure, right? And the same thing happened in the internet. Internet, you know, again, old enough to remember, 
huge focus on infrastructure in the beginning, global fiber networks for the internet, Cisco switches routers. Yeah. The companies became worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And then the applications came and became, and, and actually most of the infrastructure companies went bankrupt and the applications became the most valuable companies in the world. And I don't know if that's going to happen in, in space in the same way. Again, history doesn't repeat it rhymes, but it's, I think it's an interesting, again, student of history and interesting observation. Right. So we're going through this, um, this shift basically from, from infrastructure upstream more towards application downstream. And so that kind of then has consequences in some of the areas we find interesting because what are examples of applications? Um, we find now the potential for in-space manufacturing hugely yep. interesting. So this is taking advantage of the special conditions we find in space, right? So most of the time it's microgravity. In niche cases, it could be, you know, vacuum or even radiation as well. But most of the time is, is microgravity and the sort of physical follow-on effects that that has. So you can bind certain materials, you can bind on Earth, you can mix them, you can uh, crystallize very clean, uh, cleanly in three dimensions, you can grow very cleanly in three dimensions. And I think, so those kinds of use cases in space manufacturing never made any economic sense. It will start making increasing economic sense over the yeah. next few years because we'll have these down mass, down mass capable platforms and additional space stations and so forth. They may even enter competition. So the price comes down for these platforms. I don't know yet, but, but that could happen. And so these applications uh, will be very interesting. And the two big classes, there are material science applications, right? Stuff like um, optical fiber or advanced semiconductors. And then of course the bio, applications which were, yeah. which is something like prometheus life technology comes in and so we are really i think right now at this interesting inflection point where some of these start making sense some of these use cases the cheaper we go the more use cases will start making economic sense and that's really important because again at the end of the day we want to build real businesses right because if i yeah. if i go to you know a pharma company i want to sell my three-dimensional human tissues from space Again, like you say, everybody thinks space is cool, but they're business people. You know, at the end of the day, they don't care this is coming from space. Again, it was like, is this a good product? And does it sort of like, is, does, does this product provide sufficient value for its price? And the cheaper we go there with the, the, the in this case, the, the down mass cost for space, the full trip, the more economic sense it will make and the, the easier it will be for us to grow this as a business. Oh, absolutely. This is and yeah, well, and the downstream piece too, from a from a cost a cost equation, I think that, and you know, you're working with Orbital Reef, but the the whole business model of commercial space stations as well does open up a lot of opportunity for the exploitation of conditions in space because beyond, you know, taking on the um, the, the research projects done on the ISS from the government, companies now have the ability to rent equipment or rent space or conduct conduct their own private research. And I think that that's going to open the aperture for a lot of interesting and creative ways. It's just a matter of um, your point, the reentry issue and, and the time that it takes to, to train someone to get up there and get it back. But um, we've even seen it, you know, on a it's not that it's a great business model, but um, Doubletree Hotel, they sent their cookies up in space to be baked in space to prove that it can. And obviously they offered them as a hospitality cookie. And I think they could technically claim they were the first hospitality company in space, but it is an example of being able to exploit conditions for the coolness factor, but also now doing the actual business scalability and sustainability case, I think is the most critical to grow what we want to grow with the space economy. Yeah, absolutely. And you have some cases like that. And then we have to see, I mean, some of them will be um on the gimmicky end but they still have their value right because yeah. something like that it sounds silly and and, and you know and up there's different other examples of people taking certain products up and bringing them back to earth even that has 
I argue value because in many of these cases, it really, it made a lot of news and it sort of like brought space closer to people and it's like, oh, that's cool, that's cool right? Um, but I do think that there's going to be like an in-space, you know, again, I think in-space manufacturing is is going to become a significant business. Again, I, I'm not smart enough. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know exactly what the right time frame is. And to some extent, it also is... Um, Again, it's it's up to us as a sector to push this forward because so much is also dependent on on education, right? You cannot just sit there and, and wait for it to happen. We can, we can actually look as um, you know, I think Abraham Lincoln said, right? The, the best way to predict the future is to is to create it, right? So we can actually proactively influence that as well as a sector to some extent. Oh, absolutely. Well, and you made the interesting point too about the government's the government's role in all of this because. You know, now we don't necessarily have space programs that are vertically integrated with just government funding and coming down. However, governments still play this really critical role of the regulator, the customer, and in a lot of ways, um, really orienting where the future missions of space could go. We've seen this with the resurgence of interest in space with Artemis, with, you know, us globally declaring we're going back to the moon, we're going to use it as a research base to jump off into Mars. And that should signal to a lot of the commercial industries where monetary focus will be, right? Regulatory focus will be in the future. Um, and I, we actually have a question from the, the chat, from the audience that I'd like to posture because it sort of plays into this, but talking about this um, future environment and sort of regulatory environment and something that is near and dear to all of our hearts about space debris. <laughs> so they wanna know um, where do you see the problem of orbital space debris and accountability for it? with respect to the rapid growth in the space industry as a whole? Yeah, so I think, again, as a sector, we have to we have to be mindful of that, right? Because the last thing we want is, I mean, if, if, if we mess up Leo, there won't be a Leo economy, right? So if we have a worst yeah. case scenario where you sort of like exceed the carrying capacity of some of the orbits and, um, and you get so much debris that it can't effectively be used anymore. So I think that can be managed. Um, you know, I do see people across the board trying to be, not everyone, but I think by and large trying to be responsible. I also think even people like us as venture capitalists, we can contribute. So for example, when somebody comes to us and they, they're still proposing their own constellation, again, most of the time, well, first question is going to be, do you really need your own constellation? Can't you host it on something? But let's say they do, right? I mean, we, we, we certainly ask whether they have onboard propulsion and sort of end of life planning. Um, I, I think it's sort of irresponsible not to ask that these days i mean the the question is you know how much could you do there so i think a lot of it the industry hopefully will self-regulate out of self-interest um and then you have to see to what extent of course you can help with global regulations but it's that's a tricky thing right now at the moment of course because geopolitics are complicated yep. so you know in a in a perfect world we would have globally coordinated regulation in the same way that we have globally coordinated, um, for example, air traffic management, right, or, or equivalent on the oceans. I don't know how quickly we can get to that at the moment. I think another comment pointed out that you have these sort of like blocks now, Artemis Accords, and then like China, and and, and, and that's just reality. I do think I'm not going to give up my hope completely on that, because I think even if you have a geopolitical competition, and of course, we're in strategic competition with China, it's in nobody's interest to mess up that operating environment so even right. adversaries should actually work together and you kind of ensure that um you know this doesn't happen yeah it's it's a really interesting environment that we're wading into because 
you know, the treaties that we have, the Outer Space Treaty and the, the Moon Treaty, they, they extend to operations, peaceful operations, but not about property rights. And I think we're going to wade into a, a situation where, um, from a regulatory aspect, questioning who regulates, how much, what the accountability is, it's, I don't know what the right answer is, because it shouldn't really necessarily be commercial. It's not going to be done by one, one nation. Um, but to your point, you only have one moon. <laughs> so you there is in everyone's best interest to make sure that it can actually hit their mission and their objectives and not completely screw it up or, or ruin it. Yeah, I agree. So I'm, I mean, we could discuss this topic for hours, right? And then we should probably invite like a space lawyer as well, which would be interesting, yeah. um, or space lawyers, several of them, and uh, or and people from foundation, like some Secure, Secure World Foundation, who are also looking a lot at this. I have a fairly cynical view on this, which not many people, which or some people will not agree, which I think regulations are really tough because enforcement in space is extremely tough. And then enforce, mm -hmm. even enforcement, okay, then people say, oh, you can enforce on Earth. Well, not always, right? Because then you may have things like regulatory, what we call regulatory arbitrage, which has happened in many industries, right? Where people don't like the regulations in one country, let's say for, you know, end of life management of a set, they just go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, you know, so I tend to I tend to be very cynical about regulations, and I tend to be much more uh, optimistic about just game theory. Again, just people not wanting to screw things up because they would hurt themselves. Yeah, that's an, that's a really interesting way to put it. Because um, at the end of the day, a lot of businesses are just people. It's self preservation, right? It's company preservation. So that's a that's an interesting perspective to throw in. In terms of the regulations, are there any regulations that you think? either need to be, well, I don't even say created because you're, you sort of push against that, but need to be um, revisited to really allow the space economy to grow in the way it needs to? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm not sure I have a really good answer right now. I do notice that, or I do note that obviously now things like asteroid mining are actually coming back as a business. I mean, we, you know, mm -hmm. many people know we had this sort of first wave of excitement about asteroid mining, about... 10, 15 years ago with a couple of prominent companies. And then that was for a variety of reasons. It was too early. Both companies failed. It's now coming back. And I think, you know, still nobody has really clearly figured out what's the, you know, regulatory, the legal situation around right. that. But again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a trained space lawyer. So in our sort of day-to-day -day work, um, you know, we, we certainly always look at the relevant regulations. I mean, I mean, one thing that comes up frequently, of course, is, um, is a spectrum, right? Um, but that seems to be fairly well um, yeah. established. Yeah, it's, I think it's one of those that we're going to kind of have to wait and see. Um, you know, so if you think about how a lot of defense technologies, you know, created for the military found, the, found their ways in the commercial applications and then the, the use cases, that are very different than what the intended use case was kind of pushed on the regulatory environment to realize dr drones is a perfect example. You had these now vehicles, autonomous vehicles with cameras flying over private property, <laughs> figuring out how to regulate. And I think that um, we're going to get into that application environment like you talk about and see what we're going to then have to regulate because it, it's speculation at this point. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's also tricky for a variety of reasons. It's again, student of history. If you look back throughout history, I think it's fair to say te technology, technology innovations always run ahead. Of I agree. Regulations. I think it's about five to eight years, roughly. And probably at least. And and and, and yeah. I don't know, it may even be accelerated. It probably is accelerating. Like, so, you know, I mean, again, internet, right? I mean, 
we're still mm -hmm. countries are still doing internet laws right now in 2023 sort of to figure out like you know things like hate speech and whatever like and this is like arguably almost 30 years on from when the internet kind of became more uh, commercially used we're obviously seeing it right now with ai right people i think by and large have no idea what to do with generative ai and uh, you know whether yeah. it should be regulated and again i'm usually fall on the side of regulate less but i mean this is a long discussion but the general point being i think technology tends to run ahead of um of politics and regulation yeah it's a it's a hard conversation because i personally don't think that you should stop the progression of technology because someone might do something nefarious with it so it's it's a double-edged sword in a lot of ways um and i think we're we're going to figure it out as we're all kind of like rolling rolling into this future one question i have for you for a lot of our viewers um, they're either already in the space industry or they're thinking about getting into the space industry and i know you mentioned um you know the strategy about kind of keeping your keeping your eye on these economic drivers and really kind of paying attention to the movement of the markets but how else would you give recommendations on where they can, I guess, find their relevance? And the reason I ask that is if you look at a lot of these economic drivers of astro, I mean, I'm going by Morgan Stanley's 10, but there's, you know, asteroid mining and space tourism and all of these aspects. But when you break down each of those drivers, there's these sub components of energy storage and, you know, interesting uses of data. And what advice would you give for people to find their insertion point? Once they know the opportunities there, what should they yeah. do? So it is my distinct hope for, you know, this program right now, as for every podcast, for example, I do do that. Hopefully not 100% of our listeners are already from the space sector, but that there may be people who are still working in other sectors because those are the people we, to some extent, really need. And then for those people, it would be like, look at your strengths, right? And bring your yeah. strengths to the space sector because we need you. So again, there's this sort of still persistent misconception that, um, I know I'm repeating myself, right? But like, oh, you know, I can build, I'm a space guy, I can build a space company for the insur insurance sector. No, you can't. Like you're complete, this is arrogance. You're completely underestimating this. You want to build a useful product for the insurance sector? Do you know who to call at the insurance companies? Do you know how the economics work? Like they don't care that you're bringing data from space. They care about like, again, increasing the revenue or decreasing the cost or getting a strategic advantage. Do you know how the current IT system works? Do you know how your data would precisely flow into the IT system? Do you know what exact KPIs you want? And the answer will be no, 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 unless you're from that sector. Yeah. And so, so again, this is sort of, I'm, I don't want to come across negative here because that is an opportunity. It means that if you're from the insurance sector and you now kind of like develop an interest in the space sector, there might be a very nice niche you can find. And again, this is not the first time in history, the same thing happened with the internet and with AI and with other technologies. There was somebody working, you know, um, somebody who's working in a big bank and then he kind of got to learn more about the internet and he built like some, you know, modern fintech business and became fabulously yeah. wealthy with that. That is one really big chance to get involved. Use your strength, bring them to the space sector. Of course, learn what you need to learn about the space sector. Ideally find a co-founder who is from the space sector. So he takes care of that part then you can be a really powerful team in many instances. Yeah, I don't think it's actually a negative a negative view because that pragmatism is really important for companies to be able to, to sustain and, and to grow um, and even just to be able to survive, right? Especially because you talk about the investment environment. Um, one interesting thing that I've seen as a shift, you know, beyond just investment dollars 
somewhat declining. I think last year there was 20 billion and that's still a massive number, but it was lower than the year before was this push, um, this push toward ending hype and really moving into to hard models. And I think we've, we saw this a lot with Virgin Orbit where the technology worked, but the business case wasn't the most sustainable. And, and I, I, I imagine that some folks were watching and were like, oh my gosh, this company was, you know, majorly financially backed. They had some successful test runs, but I think it, it, it really shows to your point, like show the tangible return, show the customers, um, don't inflate, you know, your development costs and, and your operational costs, which is going to be really, really difficult. Exactly. At the end of the day, as I, as I said before, it's like build something of value, something that provides yeah. tangible value to somebody else. And then it doesn't matter. It's the space sector or it's, it's, this, it's valid for every sector on earth. If you provide something of value to somebody, they will buy it. Yeah. And I like, and there may be an educational Okay, there may be an educational sort of like gap that you have to fill first, but yeah. that's, fine. that's manageable. Well, and that goes to your point about educating, you know, about the opportunities in space. I think an education also needs to be done just more publicly about why space, about why we invest in space. You know, you were talking about these downstream applications, but I even think that because space is hard and because we push to do bold things, even if we don't technologically succeed in what we're trying to do, we're going to get better processes better ways of doing things, better subcomponents that are going to trickle down into terrestrial applications. And so it's, it's a worthwhile investment in and of itself. Yes, fully agreed. Great. Um, well, we're running up close to our time, but I don't know if there was anything else that you wanted to, to discuss that we didn't touch upon um, or maybe give some resources where people can find out more information about you or listen to your podcast or your lectures. Yeah, with pleasure. And again, um, of course, uh, primarily for people who are not yet part of the space sector, this is why I'm doing a lot of these outreach activities. So thank you for mentioning it. Um, I, I do have the podcast. Um, it's typically every week, sometimes every two weeks. Usually I interview a space entrepreneur so they can talk about their business model and explain how they create value, whether that's upstream or downstream. You like try to have a huge variety mm -hmm. right and um it's not always entrepreneurs i mean e even i get sort of bored with business sometimes so sometimes you just bring in other generally interesting people from the world of space we had chris hatfield the astronaut we had um uh, professor avi Loeb from harvard people like that so that's a podcast called the Bus space business podcast it's on every platform apple spotify uh, and all of the others and then um sometimes people look for sort of um ask about introductory courses to learn about the space economy and that's why i created a couple of introductory yeah. courses and at least a couple of them are available um, as online as so-called MOOCs, right massive online open courses uh, for example there's the uh, new space economy course on the edx edx.org platform jointly with the space institute of technology epfl i teach the same course on campus but it, there's also the um, the online version which i think has about i think close to 2,000 students worldwide already that's so quite happy quite happy with that and then you mentioned uh, the book the book um, i've actually started writing introductory books to the space economy first in german because i thought that there should be non-english books as well yeah. during COVID. and then people just kept asking like why is there no english version and then i did a completely new version totally rewritten and that came out like i think a couple of months ago in the end called to infinity and that's basically what i teach in the courses in a the format of a 240 page book yeah. or so my biggest problem there is um condensing it 
Well, there's condensing it, there's that. But the biggest problem, which is not a problem, is actually nice for the space. The space sector moves so quickly that yeah. if you're careful, like you kind of, you fall into this trap, that you just want to keep updating. And then, of course, to some extent, not, that's not necessary because, again, fundamental things actually stay the same. But, of course, it's like, oh, now this, uh, now there's a Starship test launch. Oh, now um, iSpace almost landed on the moon. It's like, oh, I should update the book. I should, it never stops. But, you know, space sector is moving ahead on many fronts, which is a, which is a good thing. Yeah, in order for, I think, the, the sector to have any sort of um, meaningful conversation, you do have to get nuanced fairly quickly to your point, because there's there's different things that shift perspective or technological progression or, or funding streams. Uh, maybe you'll just have to come out with a bunch of different online addendums that people can, can read that, or download. Yes, I think, uh, Kelly, I agree. And that's also going to happen naturally. And this is and, and it's a good thing. It's a natural development. And again, it's similar to the internet. Like, you know, Late 90s, there was probably, you could say, oh, I'm a general internet expert, right? And that, yeah. that doesn't make any sense anymore, right? Now you're like a SEO expert. You're probably an SEO expert for a specific field or something, right? And the same thing, of course, is going to happen with space. You know, like, you know, we're talking about space biotech, my company there, you know, I think there's going to be, in a few years' time, there's going to be like a whole subfield like space biotech experts. Maybe there's even going to be things like specialized space biotech funds. I mean, that that is completely yeah. conceivable. I could see it. I could see a lot of these funds because I know that, you know, for a lot of investment funds that aren't solely space focused, they are at least starting to put up a space vertical where they're starting to dip their toe. And um, I think that's where we're also going to see a lot of this adjacency because there's there's industries and verticals they already invest in. But then thinking about the application for space or the downstream use case, um, I think it's at a very we're at a very exciting time because I truly think we're only really limited by creativity and imagination the opportunities are going to be plentiful it's just people realizing how to find their place and and claim their heritage within it absolutely i think there is and maybe that's that's a nice sort of closing message i truly truly believe that there is uh, pun intended space for everyone in space yeah. in the space sector you know I think, by, I think by and large we're a very welcoming community um yeah i agree if people, if people truly share our ideals and, you know, the other nice thing, one of the other nice things about space sector is it tends to be a very idealist community. If people mm -hmm. really want to, you know, join us on this journey and help use space technology to improve the world. And this is, we haven't even talked about this. I truly believe many of the sort of issues or problems, what you call challenges we have in the world can be addressed with, with the help of space technology as well, whether it's, you know, climate monitoring, control, food security, health security, yeah. um, global remote education. I think space can really bring a lot of good to the world. Everybody's welcome. I think everybody has a role to play and, and, and yeah, we're here to help. I agree with you on that. The, the beauty of this industry is that everyone really loves what they do and they want to engage in conversations like this, right? Just be able to ask questions, pontificate, um, further clarify things. So I, I really appreciate your time today, Raphael. I, I really enjoyed this discussion and You've given me a lot of good food for thought. I think we probably have to do a totally different segment on downstream applications or, or figure out a way to have that conversation. But thank you for sharing your time. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Kelly. Absolutely. And thank you to all of our viewers. Um, we've really enjoyed engaging with you and stay tuned for next Vector Conversations. Have a great rest of your day.